Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to take a moment to thank some of our listener sponsors. Brenda Warger, Zara Castani, Kelly Winter, Stephanie Lucky, my friend Allie, who maybe doesn't want to be mentioned here by name, and there's another person in California who knows who she is. Thank you guys so much for donating to the project. You will all be receiving a special thanks in the mail. And now, on to the show. I'm just going to riff about 9-11 today because it's the 19th anniversary and I've always been fascinated by September 11th for very intimate reasons that have honestly only become clear to me in the past couple weeks while I've been reading a couple books on the topic as research for this episode. An episode that my subconscious was like, Hey, you should go and talk about 9-11. It's a real crowd pleaser. Go ahead and read some heavy books that'll upset you. It felt weirdly urgent and now it seems that there was some kind of purpose to it. We'll get to that little epiphany later on. But yeah, 9-11 has always fascinated me and I think a big part of what fascinates me is Apart from the fact that it was like this world-changing event that I watched unfold live on television when I was 10 years old. Um, Okay, incidentally, quick digression right off the bat. When I was 10 years old and I watched the September 11 attacks unfold on TV, I remember that in the evening, footage from the attacks was playing over and over on every single channel. There wasn't any kind of programming you could watch apart from news coverage unless you went to like PBS or PAX. What I didn't totally understand were the occasional references that some of these commentators and newscasters were making, some of these pundits, about how the planes that had crashed into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon were essentially a declaration of war. So I'm 10 years old and I'm hearing this and I'm like, how is this a declaration of war? Nobody said anything. I was super literal-minded and I thought, like I, like I remember seeing Airbud when I was like six or seven, and there's a scene in Airbud where somebody gets mad and he's like, I'll see you in court. And so I, I was like six or seven, and I thought, okay, well, I guess that's how court happens. It's like a Pokemon battle. You just shout at somebody, I'll see you in court, and then a judge and a jury kind of wriggle up from a pipe like Mario. And as a result of this, there was a period in like second and third grade where every time somebody upset me, I was like, I'll see you in court. And of course, court never happened, but it freaked out the kid <laughs> because they thought like they are going to have to tell their parents that they're going to court. <laughs> anyway, I'm 10 years old. I'm watching all this footage. I'm hearing what these talking heads are saying about war on TV, and I'm, and I'm trying to figure who could we possibly be going to war with because nobody seems to have come to the forefront and been like i'll see you in war which would have been that's what i thought a deck a formal declaration of war was like now at this time when i was 10 years old somebody had just recently explained to me the concept of time zones and the fact that china is a day ahead of us but it was another 10 year old who had explained to me that china is a day ahead of us Her name was Gabby, and she was like, whatever time it is here right now in America, it's that same time in China, but a day later. So my dumbass 10-year-old self was like, oh, that's who we're going to war with. Because I thought that the plane crashes were an accident, and that America was now angry at China because China was a day ahead of us. They knew this was going to happen, and they didn't tell us. I clearly did not understand time zones. I literally just thought China existed in the future. Like, if you wanted to find China, you wouldn't look at a map, you would look at a clock. If on that Tuesday morning in September, my teacher had been like, Alex, where is China? I would have said, China 
is in Wednesday. But apart from the fact that 9-11 was a major historical thing that I witnessed as a kid, also, it was so incredibly violent and horrifying, but, at least in our media-based perception of the event, it was kind of bloodless. This has come up on the show a bunch of times now. My weird, tense relationship with the imagery of atrocities, which is a miserable fascination that started when I was in college, and for a while I had no idea what the, what the source of this fascination was, because I hate gore. I can't look at, like, crime scene photos or car accident photos or whatever. The last episode of the podcast, with the one called Charlie Potatoes, is all about how squeamish I am and how I pass out when I look at, at photos, like, the kinds of shit that I end up looking for online. But for some reason, when it comes to atrocities, nation-influencing mass murder, I end up wanting to look at the ugliness firsthand. And I think that maybe that's because, like, the concept of major atrocities are often too huge for me to just grasp if, if it's being explained to me. Take the Vegas shooting, for instance. A middle-aged man who a full investigation from the FBI would finally declare had no motive at all punched out a couple of hotel windows and used several assault rifles to kill 59 civilians at an outdoor concert. Like, I, I can't compute how many layers of normalcy are violated in that sentence. Number one, smashing a hotel window. Seems like a very difficult thing to do. Number two, owning several assault rifles. Number three, slaughtering 59 strangers. Number four, having no motive. There's fucking security camera footage on YouTube where you can see bellboys at the hotel helping the shooter carry these enormous sacks of guns and ammunition up to his hotel room and making small talk with him as they do it. It's just, it just sounds too outlandish to comprehend. Some visceral part of me kind of needs to see it. You have to show me what you mean when you tell me that a middle-aged man broke two hotel windows and used several machine guns to kill 59 strangers at a Vegas concert. And atrocities like that, like 9-11 or the Vegas shooting or the Paris attacks, but what I think they kind of reveal to me, if reveal isn't too strong a word, is just the idea that our conception of normalcy is a construct. It isn't some brick wall in our genetic coding that keeps us from taking a shit in the hallway, or spitting on a colleague's computer. It's simply our sense of decorum, our sense of what is acceptable behavior. And there are some behaviors that we have deemed so unacceptable, so outlandish, that we tell ourselves they aren't even possible. Like, for instance, flying two commercial jets into office buildings on a Tuesday morning. Which, incidentally, here's a bit of trivia. Somebody once told me that there are two crimes where you can only get prosecuted if you fail at committing them. The first one is suicide. If you're in a place where suicide is illegal and you successfully do suicide, well, you're not going to jail because you're dead. You can only get in trouble if you try it and fail. The second crime that you can only go to jail for attempting and failing is an overthrow of the government. Pretty much every country's law says that you cannot overthrow the government. It's just not allowed. But if you do overthrow the government, well, suddenly you are the government and you're not going to put yourself in prison which I think is an interesting bit of trivia, and it crosses my mind on a not irregular basis. But whenever it does cross my mind, I smile and I think, that would be so cool to be the undisputed leader of a country for a little while. But it's actually not cool. The concept of dictatorship is not cool, but also my interest in having complete power over people is is pretty superficial. Like, the, it doesn't stand, it doesn't last. The desire to have full government power. The only reason I ever crave total undisputed power is because I want to tell somebody to go fuck themselves without consequence. Like whenever my boss tells me I have to take another six hour course to learn a new piece of software that I will then never use, I always get really angry and I'm like, you better fucking hope to God I don't become emperor. But also I think in my head I conflate authority 
with freedom. And what I really want is like the authority to tell people to fuck off so that I can be alone. But it'd be weird if like you suddenly became emperor of the world or whatever. And then your big ruling was like, everyone must go away. <laughs> I think that's the kind of emperor I would be. Now that I am your king, leave. Incidentally, speaking of arguing with authority figures, I went to a bar at a children's arcade a few years ago. We'll get back to 9-11, but first I want to tell you this. When I went to see The Force Awakens, it was on opening day in, I guess, December of 2015. And after I got my ticket, I knew that I was going to have to stand in a long line outside the theater. So I was like, okay, let me grab a quick beer at the closest available bar. This is at Sunset Mall in South Miami, which does have a bar now inside the movie theater, and it did at the time. But that bar, which is called MacGuffins, um, doesn't open until 4 p.m. And this was like early afternoon. This is like 1. So I went instead to the big arcade next door to the theater, which is called Game Time, where they've got a sports bar in the first floor. So I go inside, I take a seat, and I'm like, hello, do you have any specials today? And the bartender was like, ah, yes, we have a special on Corona. And I said, very splendid, I will have a Corona. Incidentally, I don't drink Corona anymore. It's kind of a sad story. I don't want to bring the room down, but um, I suffer this kind of terrible affliction called taste buds. Uh, I woke up one day when I was like 27 and suddenly they were all over my tongue. And now because of these taste buds, um, I'm forced to drink pretty much anything but Corona. But anyway, the way this went down is I said, um, do you have any specials? And the bartender was like, yeah, Corona is half off. She said, Corona, quote, is half off. And I said, it's not happy hour, is it? And she goes, no, it's just that all of our customers lately appear to have tongues, so they can't drink this because apparently they can taste it. So I was like, okay, cool beans. I'm just going to have one, I said to her, because I'm seeing Star Wars in like 20 minutes. I said to her specifically, I'm having one beer. One beer, I will remind you, that is half off. So she comes around with a Corona. I drink it. Eventually, I see that it's about that time. I need to start heading to the theater. And then I'm like, hey, can I get my check? And she says, sure. So she goes away, prints my check, comes back, hands it to me. I look at the check. The check says, I owe $8. And I was like, what the fuck? A Corona is $16? And the bartender's confused. She's a little flummoxed. And she goes, no, no, Corona's not $16. And I was like, you told me it was half off, but the receipt says it's $8. And she says, yeah, it's two for the price of one. You said you only wanted one. And I said, wait, those are two different things. You, you told me it was half off. And she says, yeah, that's what half off means. It's two for the price of one. And I said, yeah, but no, in the, because in this case, you're presenting me with one Corona for the price of one Corona, since I don't, I'm telling you I don't want this. I told you I don't want the second. <laughs> Eventually she's like, all right, let me get the manager. But I'd already told her that I was in a hurry to go see a movie. So I think that she thought I was bluffing, like I wasn't going to stick around to argue this, but I wasn't bluffing. So I was like, no problem, I'll stick around. So the manager comes up to the bar. He's like, sir, what's the issue? And so I tell him. She told me this beer was half off, when in reality, it's buy one, get one. And he was like, I'm sorry, sir, I failed to see the difference. And so we go back and forth about it. He refuses to see my point. And so finally, I was like, dude, just give me the other Corona. So he gets a Corona, he pops the tab, he hands it over. And because I was feeling like petulant or whatever, I stood up like Braveheart and I chugged this Corona on this Thursday afternoon in December, which was kind of indecorous because I was standing in an arcade and there were a bunch of kids around. But what the fuck? There's a difference between something being half off and being buy one, get one. There is a difference. Anyways, back to 9-11. We left off talking about how it's really just our sense of decorum, our sense of what is acceptable behavior that dictates what we believe is possible, which I think is probably one of the factors in my fascination with the lives of homeless people in my neighborhood who do 
take shits in the hallway and expose themselves in public and guzzle vodka at the bus stop at 11 a.m. One of the things that I find fascinating about watching them in their daily lives in my, in my neighborhood is like these are people who are untethered by the bounds of de by the, like the strictures of decorum. They're cordial to one another. They're cordial to passersby whenever you talk to them, but they're like they'll just fart if they need to fart. If they need to take a piss, they'll just pull their dick out and pee on the side of the wall. Anyway, another thing that kind of consumes me about 9-11 is, like I said earlier, it's an act of almost unfathomable mass murder and cataclysm and violence, but we don't associate it with conventional images of violence. When we think of 9-11, we don't really have images in our head of human beings suffering. We have images in our head of damage being done to buildings. Because not only were the victims wiped away, but given the nature of the attack, the scenes of the crime were themselves destroyed. One of the most famous photos to come out of the September 11th attacks was that of the falling man. It was shot by a photographer named Richard Drew, and it shows a professionally dressed man upside down with his hands behind his back in free fall from one of the towers. Tons of people jumped from the higher floors of the World Trade Center above the crash sites because there was no other way of escape. But we never really see photos of their bodies on the ground. And there are a few reasons for that. The first and most obvious reason we never see photos of those people who are somewhat crudely referred to as 9-11 jumpers is that only 102 minutes transpired between when Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower and then that tower's collapse. Incidentally, the first tower that was struck was the second one to fall. Photographers couldn't really rush to the scene before the remains of jumpers were entombed by millions of pounds of rubble. And the second reason, I think a little less obvious, is that a lot of 9-11 jumpers didn't actually hit the ground. Bear in mind, both towers of the World Trade Center were 110 stories high. They were, for a short while after opening in the 1970s, the tallest buildings in the world until, just one month after the ribbon-cutting of the World Trade Center, the Sears building went up in Chicago and took the title. But so when people jumped from the 92nd or the 100th floor of the World Trade Center, they didn't always hit the ground. They hit the roofs of other buildings. And there are some photos of those rooftop crime scenes which are about as grisly as you would imagine. But I often have to think about that because it gives me a sense of how huge these fucking towers were. I'm not sure if it's true, but I read somewhere that if you fall from a height that's greater than twice your own body height, the odds of survival are about 50-50. Whenever we hear a story of somebody falling even 10 stories off of a building, we pretty much automatically assume that they're dead. But in the case of the World Trade Center, people could fall 85 stories and end up landing on the roof of a very tall building. And the third reason we never see the remains of people who jumped to their death on 9-11 is because they kind of dissolved upon impact. The terminal velocity of a person jumping to the earth belly down is about 120 miles per hour. But if they're falling straight, either head down or foot down, a person's body can sometimes reach up to 180 miles an hour. At either of those speeds, there isn't much left when you land. In fact, this was the cause of the first New York firefighter casualty on the scene of, the, of Ground Zero. A firefighter who was running into the building was hit on the head by a jumper who then hit the ground beside him. Another crazy story about a jumper, um, there was a woman who jumped off of one of the World Trade Centers and when she hit the ground, her entire body disappeared except for like the upper right quadrant of her torso. So she was basically both shoulders, her right arm, and her head, and nothing else. And there was a firefighter who came over her and she looked up at him and she reached out with her one remaining arm and she was like, I'm not dead, call my daughter. I'm not dead, call my daughter. And apparently emergency responders can cover victims 
at a crime scene with different colored tarps, and the tarps mean different things. Like, I think blue, for instance, means that you're gonna, this person's gonna be okay. Orange means that this person urgently needs help. And then black means that this person is alive at the moment, but there's no chance of their being saved. So this responder, he says, okay, let me cover you up. And he pulls out one of his black tarps and he puts it, you know, up to her neck. And she's like, I'm fine. I'm not, I'm not dead. Call my daughter, call my, and he was like, I'll be right back. I promise. And he recounts the story of just, he walked away and had to steel himself against the idea that this woman was going to die there. Horrible little story. I know. I learned this a couple weeks ago while reading Michael Zukoff's incredible book about 9-11 called Fallen Rise, the story of 9-11. But of those two anecdotes, the one that really stayed with me was that of the firefighter who was struck and killed by a jumper, by one of the people he was there to rescue, but for whom there was no actual chance of rescue. There's something about like the very dark intimacy of that image that has stayed with me. In his novel Falling Man, Don DeLillo was one of the first American fiction writers to release an entire novel based on the 9-11 attacks. And in one of the early chapters, he talks about the phenomenon of organic shrapnel, which sounds like an oxymoron because when we think of shrapnel, we think of projectiles, especially metal. But we lose sight of the fact that a person's body is also an object. And in an explosion, it is one object among many. The example that Don DeLillo gives in his novel is of something that happens to survivors of terrorist attacks who happen to be standing near the suicide bomber when he explodes. So let's say there's a pedestrian standing near a suicide bomber. Suicide bomber blows himself up, and by some miracle, the pedestrian is unscathed. He goes for a medical check after the explosion, and everything is fine. No lacerations, no broken bones. They're one of the lucky ones. Except, a few days later, their cheek begins to swell, and it starts changing colors. It seems like maybe there's some kind of abscess in there. They can't even chew right. So they go back to the doctor. The doctor cuts into the abscess on their cheek and finds a tiny fragment of the suicide bomber's tooth or of the suicide bomber's toe. A fragment of a human being that flew into this person's cheek. A fragment so small there wasn't even an entry wound. Thus, organic shrapnel. In fact, one of the anxieties often voiced by people who were running through that cloud of dust that filled the streets of New York after the towers came down was the idea that you were inhaling not just stone and asbestos and microscopic shards of glass, as CBS once put it, but the pulverized remains of people who had died in and around the towers. You were breathing organic shrapnel into your lungs. You were inhaling the dead. A 2020 article from Time magazine showed that first responders on 9-11 have seen in the past 19 years an increased risk for prostate and thyroid cancer, as well as a host of respiratory diseases. And Zukov, in his book Fall and Rise, in fact, tells us that by this time next year, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, more people will have died as a result of Ground Zero-related illnesses than died during the actual attacks. Which prompts what I find to be one of the strangest facts there is to register about 9-11, which is the fact that the death toll is still rising. All this talk about 9-11 survivors who are beset by respiratory ailments and the idea of like inhaling the dead, it reminds me of this time, it was like a year and a half ago. I never really smoke weed, but suddenly, out of nowhere, I was like, I think I wanna be prepared to smoke weed, like should the opportunity present itself. So I told myself, okay, I'm gonna go buy a bowl. So there's a, a head shop that I know of on Brickle, it's right near Brickle City Center. I went there to buy a pipe and I should have known better than to go to, like, the Church of Weed, 
when I'm not really an engaged smoker, when all I'm looking for is something simple. Because people at head shops don't want to sell you simplicity. They want to sell you a religion. I've made mistakes like this in the past, and I always tell myself I will never make it again. But every few years, I forget about it. And I do the same fucking thing. I accidentally ask a stoner about his bong. And thus, I condemn myself to 14 minutes of... STONER SCIENCE! Alright Alex, first of all you're gonna need to buy a grinder. You can't just break up your weed with your fingers or with a knife because that will molest the calm of the bud. And you cannot molest the calm of the bud. So you're gonna put your weed in a grinder because what the grinder does is it emits a music at the same subsonic frequency that plants communicate with each other. Once your weed is asleep you're gonna light it, okay? But don't use fire. Fire's bad. Frankenstein was right. What you're gonna need is a blowtorch. I'll just put that on your tab. Don't worry, it's only 40 bucks. Because you gotta let the THC receptor cells of the Dolpheus Botanicus, incidentally, in order to generate the Labia Marajora, you're gonna need to drive out to the Redlands, okay? I know a guy. He's gonna sell you a very tranquil emu. This fucking guy just went on and on and on. And finally, he told me what it would cost for all the shit that he was prescribing, and it was like $120. A grinder, a bowl, a blowtorch. And I was like, dude, I, I get a little stoned if I eat too much romaine. I don't need high-tech shit. Like, I do, I do not have a tolerance for weed. If I smell your white guy dreadlocks right now, I will probably start coughing. I ended up just leaving without getting anything, and not even because the prices were ridiculous, although they kind of were, it's because I just could not get a straight answer about anything I was buying. Three things you can never discuss with a stoner. Weed itself, science, and ghosts. But so I ended up going to one of these little convenience stores on 8th Street, right near my apartment where I go every now and then for like a Gatorade or something, and I've mentioned these places in the past. Most of what they sell, almost the entirety of their inventory, is catered toward the folks in my area who are homeless. These convenience shops sell $1 toothbrushes, they sell beer by the bottle in the can, travel-sized bars of soap, individual cups of instant ramen, scratch-offs, the particular one that I'm talking about. When you go up to the counter of this particular convenience store, there's like a glass countertop. And when you look down through the glass, you can see a bunch of random shit that's also for sale. All of which is conspicuously stolen. Like, there will be a single brass knuckle with a chafed surface, and there will be a, a silver Zippo lighter with someone else's initials engraved on it, or like a damaged copy of Transporter 3 on Blu-ray. But also, every time I've gone in there, I've noticed that they've got like three or four little bowls. And these bowls are obviously pre-owned, obviously used and battered, but they're small and they're cheap and they're simple, more importantly. So I, I buy... A, a, a tiny one. It's about the size of my pinky. It costs seven bucks. Nobody tells me I need to get a blowtorch or a tranquil animal. And then I leave. But this purchase transpired after I had that encounter with the midnight meth head that I told you about a couple weeks ago. If you haven't heard that story, go back to an episode called Late Night Meth with Shredded Cheese. I had this weird encounter with a meth head on the corner that I have to turn on to get to my apartment. But as I, so I pass that corner as I'm walking to my apartment and I remember the meth head and I'm holding this bowl in my hand and I think, fuck, what if somebody overdosed with this pipe and died? Which, okay. Before you start, I know that you cannot overdose on weed. But I didn't know if a person can overdose on crack. And I didn't know if crack could be smoked out of this kind of pipe. I was afraid that maybe somebody had used this bowl to smoke crack. They overdosed, they died. And that something about their death was like... This is gonna sound stupid and I don't really believe in like spectral paranormal shit. I was concerned that maybe this bowl was haunted. But so I have this pipe, I take it home, and I googled, can you smoke crack out of a bowl you would use for weed? And I got my answer, no. 
But still, there was clearly some kind of granular residue in the bowl. I didn't feel totally comfortable using it, so I boiled it in some water on my stove. And then while it was boiling, I took out my phone and I started Googling like whether there are any kind of bad vibes in a pipe. I don't know. I was having such trouble articulating this. Don't grill me on it. But in my search, I found this forum that is occupied by a bunch of old guys who collect pipes tobacco pipes wooden pipes corn cob pipes and they've got these kick-ass collections pipes that are 100 200 years old and shit they've got different kinds of wood grain anyway apparently in the modern day if you collect old-timey wooden pipes you're probably a regular patron of estate sales sales where you are buying shit that people don't need anymore because they're dead and so there was a very engaged conversation on this forum and the topic was would you smoke from a dead man's pipe? And it's and it was fascinating because you can tell that everybody on this forum is an old ass man. And it was so cool to see that like Grandpa Steve gets the heebie-jeebies to think about smoking from what they constantly refer to as a dead man's pipe. Anyway, I boiled my pipe and I seeped it in alcohol and I let it sit on my desk untouched for a couple weeks before using it. And then I use it like three or four times before leaving it at a party. But anyway, back to September 11th. I saw a brief documentary on YouTube last week about the breakneck efforts to clear the rubble from ground zero and then recover, identify, and return the remains of victims to their families. Now, the discovery of remains was going on for a very long time after the attacks. For instance, it was going on for months in Somerset County, PA, where United 93 crashed into an open field. According to Zukov, about 650 pounds of human remains were found scattered among the trees surrounding that crash site in Pennsylvania. They would find a breast here, a jawbone there, and, strangest of all, they found the neatly severed face of one of the United 93's terrorists tossed into the grass face up so many yards from the wreck. And what proved strangely torturous around this whole search ordeal is that Apart from the grief that victims' families had to suffer when they were first alerted to the fact that their loved one had died, they then had to be notified continuously over the course of months whenever a new piece of their loved one was found. So imagine, your spouse dies in a plane crash. Two weeks later, you get a phone call. We found your spouse's jaw. What would you like us to do with it? A month after that, you get another call. We found a skull fragment. We believe it might belong to your spouse. What would you like us to do with it? And then two weeks after that, and Zukov tells of at least one family that was like, listen, don't even tell me anymore when you find pieces of them. Just contribute those pieces to the, the collective remains. Because there was a plan already, even before the Ground Zero Museum was built, to have a sort of display in there where they could store the collected remains. Because some people didn't want to... Like, there, there are instances where a family would bury their loved one from 9-11, and the only thing in the casket was a single tooth and a fragment of their skull. So a lot of them just didn't even see the point in taking back the remains, and they were just like, you know, put them with the rest. Incidentally, in the September 11th Memorial Museum, there is what's called a family room, a quiet place for prayer and reflection to which the only people who have access are members of the victim's family. If you go on the museum's website, you can see the rules for entering the room. And the most notable rule, I thought, was the one that says, photography of the room's interior is for personal use only. It is not to be shared online. And as far as a Google search shows me, it seems that that rule is pretty well followed. But one of the most resonant details I heard about victims' remains was in that brief documentary I just mentioned that I watched on YouTube. A woman whose husband had worked in the World Trade Center and who'd been seated in the direct path of one of the planes, she was afraid that no portion of his body would ever be found, that he had just been completely consumed by the fire, by the rubble. 
Searchers at Ground Zero asked for her to donate something of his that had DNA on it, like a toothbrush, for instance, or a hairbrush. So she gave them a hairbrush, and several months later, they came back to her and they said, We found a pair of shin bones on the roof of a nearby building, and they appear to fit your husband's DNA. And when she asked them whether or not he had suffered when he died, they said that he almost certainly did not. What they said had probably happened, given that all they found were his legs, and the way that they were thrown at just such an angle. They said that the blast of the airplane had probably completely incinerated the top half of his body instantaneously, but that the desk had protected his legs, and that when the metal desk was thrown from a window, his legs were tossed along with it. But even that wasn't the most striking story that I heard about a victim's remains, or about the general aftermath of 9-11. The most striking detail of Zukov's entire book came toward the end, from Lee and Eunice Hansen, a married couple in their 80s who now live in Connecticut, and who, on September 11th, were on the phone with their son, Peter, and their daughter-in-law, Sue Kim, and their granddaughter, Christine, all of whom were on board one of the flights that crashed into the World Trade Center. They heard their son, Peter, scream as they watched on TV as his airplane crashed. Of her son's death, which she witnessed live on TV and listened to over the phone, Eunice would later say, we, as his parents, heard his first cries, and we heard his last. This episode, as you might have realized, is a bit of a therapy session. Here's the epiphany at the end of the show. Because I've, I've spent three weeks planning a 9-11 episode. I was wondering why the fuck I kept forcing myself back to these two miserable books that I was reading, reading about the attacks. One called Fall and Rise, that's the one I've mentioned mostly throughout, and the other one was called 102 Minutes, which was, I think, a little more hastily assembled. And anyway, here's where it starts. I'm not really sure why... I'm so obsessed with the homeless people in my neighborhood and why I talk about them on virtually every episode of the podcast. But I do feel in some kind of visceral way like there's a, there's a connection between my fascination with the homeless people in my neighborhood and with national atrocities, such as I've been discussing them on this week's episode. And I think I figured out what the connection is. Lately, as I mentioned last week, I've been worrying a lot about work and about money. I'm always worrying about work and money, but it's generally a kind of fog I can't tell where my fear of not being able to make a living ends and my fear of not being able to make a living as a writer begins. But it's been pretty pronounced lately, um, mainly in a kind of fever pitch about last month's rent, which you guys helped me out with thanks to your donations. But also because last month I, I got pretty close to that point of just not having money. And fortunately, when I hit a really bad spot, I was able to sort of put my pride in my pocket and I asked my dad for help, I asked you guys for help, and fortunately... I had this safety net, and it was humbling, to say the least, but it was a learning opportunity. And one of the things on which I've, I've, I've kind of snagged my brain's little toe is the idea that having reached this point where I could see my last dollar, it makes me confront the idea that, like, a day might come where I reach that last dollar, and there's nobody around to help me get to the next one. And then what do I do? 
In my junior year of college, um, I was taking the second of two postmodernism courses. And at the end of the semester, our professor told us that we had we could write our final paper on whatever we wanted. Our assignment was just to, to choose a text and look at it through the prism of deconstructive ethics, which is a mouthful, I know. Anyway, the assignment. We could write about a TV show, a YouTube channel, a comic book, a popular novel, anything. Whatever you chose, whatever your topic was, you just had to run it by the professor and get a green light. So I decided to do my final paper on horror movies. In the early 2000s, the production company New Line Cinema, which I think was owned by Michael Bay, they did remakes of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street. Three major properties in the world of horror, and all three of them were so similar in, in tone and story arc that I wanted to look at them as extensions of one another. So my professor sat down with me in the food court um, outside of class one day, and I was like, hey, is it cool if I apply the postmodernism theory stuff to these three horror movies. And she nodded, and she was like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But then she started staring off, and she was thinking about something, and she goes, you know what interests me about those kinds of horror movies? The abject. She said, something that's abject is like debasing or dehumanizing. An abject situation is a situation that has gotten as bad as it can get. What she was referring to was the idea that slasher movies show characters in situations where they do things like they'll crawl through sewage tunnels in order to save themselves from death, um, or they will run naked into traffic to escape the slasher. Or sometimes we'll see, like, their intestines get ripped out of them while they're having sex. The hideousness of life, of mortality, of bodily fluids, and the weak messiness of the human body is all laid bare in slasher movies. And so she steered me toward this perspective that really rang my bell, and I had a, a great time writing the paper. I realized in working on that paper that those New Line Cinema remakes of Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they all made a point of showing that the slashers were poor, that they lived in shacks or in unfurnished boiler rooms, and their clothes were tattered and full of holes, they were stained, and then we would get close-ups of their ugly meals and their bad teeth and their dented cars, and, and we would get those close-ups while spooky music was playing. It would show us their ugliness and their poverty, it would suggest that each, there was a chicken-egg situation. Maybe they're poor because they're ugly, or they're ugly because they're poor. And in all three of those movies, their poverty and their ugliness was supposed to be a visual cue that we should fear them. And also, they were, they were evil for the way that they celebrated their squalor. They chewed rotten food with their mouths open, and they laughed while they did it. Anyway, that's what you got me to focus on with these horror movies. But now I've been realizing, while working on this 9-11 episode and in reading and looking at shit from atrocities, I am fascinated by portraits of people who are debased by the desperation of their situation. That also sounds like a mouthful. I'm not sure if I'm explaining this very well. I don't think the supposed epiphany has totally cohered in my head. There's a pretty shitty movie by Ridley Scott that I kind of like. It was written by Cormac McCarthy and it's called The Counselor. And I'm going to go ahead and ruin it for you because it, you really shouldn't watch it. At the end of the movie, once the main character has fucked up his life irreparably um, by trying to finance a drug deal that went bust, the cartel thinks that he's responsible and they're going to try to kill his wife in revenge. So he goes to a crime boss asking for help. And the crime boss tells him, the world in which you seek to undo your mistakes is different from the world where the mistakes were made. You're trying to make a choice right now, but there's no choosing here. There's only accepting. The choosing was done a long time ago when you chose to get involved in this. So the counselor freaks out and he's like, oh, but you told me earlier that I was at, I was at the crossing, I was at a crossroads, that there could be a different outcome here. And what the drug lord tells him in so many words is that, yes, you're at the crossroads, but the crossroads is internal. You can take the road of accepting that this is your new reality, 
and thereby adapting to it, or you can take the road of refusing to believe that this is your new reality. And by refusing it, by fighting it, it's going to continue to shock you and continue to mortify you, and it's going to be more and more painful. He says to the counselor, you're at the crossroads of accepting the fact that life is not going to take you back. And so I look at the homeless people in my area, people who in some cases are fucking hilarious in conversation. They've got a ton of friends in the neighborhood. Everybody loves them, including store owners. They've got, they've got charisma bleeding out of their pores. And yet, they're eating out of the trash. They're sleeping each night face down on the pavement with nothing but their sneakers underneath them for a pillow. I mean, I tell myself that the concept of going to a public trash can, sifting through it with my bare hands, pulling out a stranger's half-eaten red meat sandwich and putting it in my fucking mouth, I tell myself that it's unfathomable. Not just for me, but as a kind of human behavior. And yet, I see it literally every single day. Not only do I see it every day, I see it right outside my apartment. It's like this alternate reality that wants to stay close enough to me to remind me every single day that it's not all that alternate. That the lines are way thinner than I think. And I have to imagine that for the people trapped in the very top floors of the World Trade Center going through their normal mundane white-collar Tuesday morning routine, the idea of a fucking commercial airplane crashing into their office and incinerating hundreds of people before finally bringing one of the tallest buildings in the world down to, the, down to a fucking pile of rubble, I'm sure it sounded pretty outlandish. But yeah, there was something abject last month about running almost completely out of money and just thinking like, what now? <laughs> if, if I hadn't had resources for help, I just would have been out on my ass. It's kind of like the answer to what now is just this. And I imagine for all the homeless people in my neighborhood, there must have been some point in their life, there must have been a first night that they slept on the sidewalk. There must have been a period where they had no money, no help. They were sitting on the sidewalk and they thought, what now? And then they just laid down and they said, this. And I imagine for the people in the World Trade Center, there was a moment where they thought, what now? And then they thought, this? Anyway, Jesus, thanks for listening to this particularly morbid episode of Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I will see you in the future. Or, as I used to call it in 2001, China. China.